0: L- Late last night, I saw De Blasio tweeted Seinfeld's article and said, uh, you know, a, a born New Yorker knows will survive. And I responded and I said, you know, I'm glad you're on Twitter instead of helping the 22,000 people you're about to lay off.
1: Welcome to a special episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is James Altucher. He just wrote something on LinkedIn that got picked up by the New York Post that New York City is dead. Yesterday, as of recording, uh, Jerry Seinfeld took out an (laughs) op-ed in the New York Times to speak out against it and to trash James. Um, It has just created such incredible emotional responses to daring to inventory the ways in which New York is hugely challenged to rebuild from this crisis. And it's amazing to me because The Atlantic back in June by, uh, I think George Packer wrote an article called, this is exposing the United States as a failed state and didn't have anywhere near the purchase that James's article has. Uh, in the post. It, it's just everywhere. De Blasio is quoting it. Um, it's it's started kind of a, a, a global conversation about the impact of this on New York and, and daring to detail the ways in which um, New York has been so perhaps um, irrevocably altered by this and damaged by this. And uh, it's created a lot of uncertainty. And I think that that more than anything is why this thing struck such a nerve. Human beings are profoundly allergic to feeling uncertain about things. And, uh, so I talked to James as much about the reaction to this as the article itself, but I I encourage you to read it. Read Seinfeld's response in the New York Times, where he doesn't really take any of James's arguments, but just trashes him ad hominem. But, uh, We're looking at New York as a canary in the coal mine for the country at large, dealing with this. And uh, James's piece um, just struck a nerve. And so I really wanted to talk to him. And uh, here's James L. Tucher.
2: How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? I'm good. I've just been reading a lot of the responses to your article. It's fascinating.
0: It is. It's fascinating almost from so many points of view, like not only a point of view about New York, but a point of view about, it's almost like an anthropological point of view. It's also yes. an interesting statement about this year and what's been happening and kind of the pent-up anger that happens. You know, everybody sort of reverts to the a childlike version of themselves. And then it's also kind of interesting... Um, you know, just seeing how people are afraid and the different ways they take that fear out, and I, and I underestimated that, unfortunately, or or fortunately, I don't know.
2: <laughs> well, well, so I, I want to get to the Seinfeld thing first, but yes. I would I would like to know what has been the response to this. You write a post on LinkedIn, and the post takes it. I saw you were on Fox News, but but you tell me. What has happened after you put this out on on LinkedIn? That New York City is dead. Right. So, um, how
0: about I give uh, like a thirty thousand point of view, then a ten thousand feet point of view, and sure. then where we're at. So, thirty thousand point of view is that I kept seeing more and more issues. And by the way, I wasn't seeing them as an observer, or I mean, or as as a, a disinterested observer. I was seeing them as, you know. I live in New York City. I have five kids. My kids go to school in New York City. I own a storefront business in New York City. I also participated in, you know, a lot of discussions about with other small businesses in my area and how to keep a flow and how to support each other and, you know, I was I've been heavily involved in the community and, you know, from from the beginning. Uh from March we we didn't leave. We were there through you know, let's say the the bulk of the you know coronavirus and the b l m protests and um and again, seeing you know various businesses to our dismay uh fail even before the lockdowns were over and so I was not just a disinterested observer, I was a really an active participant, and I was seeing things on the ground that were disturbing, and it was also disturbing to me that I felt when I was talking to other people that nobody else was seeing what I was seeing. And I shouldn't say nobody else, but a lot of my friends or a lot of people I knew just had simply left New York and didn't really know what was going on. So everybody a lot of people left in March. And and I felt like you can't really be we're not going to solve the city's problems if we're in denial about the issues. And a lot of people were seeing random issues like, oh, okay, some restaurants might go out of business, but, you know, New York's got grit. We'll we'll hold on. And, you know, some people may have left, but they didn't really belong in New York anyway. And some companies are going remote, but once there's a vaccine, every company's going to want to go back. People want to be around each other. And, uh, you know, yeah, commercial real estate will take a hit, but the Chinese will come in and buy all the buildings. So... Sure. People were sort of in this um, kind of—I don't know what kind of cognitive bias it is—but it felt very biasy, <laughs> to, to, to make up a word. And so I, I, I decided to just write an article, kind of interweaving. You know, I'm not a reporter, so I just—I'm I, a writer, so I, I wanted to interweave my own personal story with New York. I was born here. I was—I I grew up in and around the city. I spent my entire adult life in the city you know i owned a storefront business a comedy club uh all my friends and family were in the city not all of them but a lot and uh and at the same time there's real issues like i was seeing restaurants that i loved that were boarded up which it wasn't like oh poor me i can't eat out chinese food at my favorite place it was like poor the people who had a chinese restaurant for 30 years and poor mm. all their employees and how many other restaurants are out of business? And when I did some digging, I saw that there were already thousands of restaurants in New York City out of business. And then I would talk to, like, you know, accountants to see if I called around and I had called people and I said, are you seeing this? And they and they all said, yes, we're seeing a lot of restaurants going out of business. And, you know, and I would get varying opinions like, oh, well, you know, when res- one restaurant goes out of business, another person will think, oh, now's the time to start a restaurant in New York. But I wasn't talking to anybody who wanted to start a business in New York. Like, that seemed <laughs> ridiculous. Like, nobody was waking up and saying, boy, today's the day I make my dreams come true and I start a pizza restaurant in in downtown New York or Midtown New York or whatever. Like, nobody was saying that. And then you go to Midtown New York, and even though all the offices are technically open now in this phase of the, the pandemic – Midtown was empty and people will say well Midtown Manhattan is not New York City the problem is there's a couple million people who go to Midtown Manhattan every day to make a living and to work and I'm not just talking about the employees on the 50th floor of the Time Life building I'm talking about the halal truck and the hot dog truck and you know the subway system and the buses and uh you know the the people who work at the magazine stands and, yes, all the employees – now, so, so I looked into this. So I look into everything. So on the restaurants, turned out there's already thousands of restaurants permanently shut down in New York and maybe many more that we don't realize. So there's estimates of up to – altogether, there's 240,000 small businesses in New York City and there's estimates that up to 80,000 small businesses in New York City will not ever reopen again that's an estimate it's the partnership for new york city it made the estimate i don't know who they are but it was quoted in the new york times and uh, and other places i don't know 80,000 seems like a big number but even if it's 10,000 15,000 which i'm uh, i'm thinking we're already getting close to that's a, an extremely big number and then you see there's 13,000 specifically 13,117 vacancies where CNBC recently reported that number. And that's an all-time high for New York City apartment vacancies, not office vacancies. Yeah. And then I was thinking to myself, well, okay, is that really a big number you know, for a city of 8 million people? But then I read um, and, and did the research, uh, one out of four residents have not paid their rent it, since March. So there's going to be a lot more vacancies, not to mention there's 600,000 college students in New York City, and a lot of the colleges are remote now. So, how many vacancies will there be in September by students who never came back? Certainly, all the international students are not coming back. And uh, there's going to be more apartment vacancies 20,000, 30,000. I don't know. But if 13,000 was already an all time high, that's pretty scary. Yeah. And, and then you start looking at well, what's going on with these office buildings in Midtown? Why aren't they, why isn't everybody back to work yet? You're supposed to be back at work. Well, it turns out two things, three things. One is some companies are moving out of New York City. Uh, uh, Some companies are bankrupt. Some companies are remote. Uh, Some buildings have capacity limitations, like only 25% false. And and so you say, okay, well, these companies, that's fine. You know, there's going to be a vaccine at some point or this pandemic will blow over and everybody will come back. But then I started talking to people and everyone I spoke with said, oh, I'm doing more work than ever working from home. Like remote is actually much more productive for me. And a lot of people were saying that. And at the same time, companies have – I always say companies have a good reason. This is true for everyone. People, when they give a reason, they have a good reason and a real reason. And yet they always tell you the good reason, which you can't argue with, but then the real reason you have to dig for. Mm. So, so the good reason a lot of companies were going remote was oh, we're protecting people from coronavirus, and that's true. That is a very good reason. And and on top of it, companies don't yet understand what the liability issues are. So this is going to vary state by state, city by city, federal. Who knows? There's no rules on this yet. We don't. Nobody knows what it means to be coronavirus compliant in terms of liability. So if someone gets coronavirus while on going to work for you, so so you know that starts to get a little closer to the real reason but then also companies that have enormous cost savings when they don't have to get desks, computers, cubicles and office space for thousands of employees so that's going to create a uh, uh, and I, so I talked to big commercial real estate owners that's going to create a lot of problems if if a company previously had rented seven floors in a building but now we're only they were only going to rent one or two then that building is already out of business uh and you can argue well that's just the wealthy or whatever but that means that you know there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering as these bankruptcies go through litigation and it's going to be harder for people to to rent it's not necessarily going to mean rents go down if if all these buildings whether residential or commercial are are in litigation or and building stops and housing stops so So and you know then you're going to have WeWork go out of business. They're the biggest renter in New York City. So I'm assuming WeWork's going out of business. There's no way for them to survive. That's going to cause a commercial real estate collapse, you know, rivaling 2008. And but then there's the real reason. Again, there's the real reason why uh, companies want people remote is they, they just the enormous cost savings and there's no decrease in productivity. So I looked at a bunch of studies. I can send them to you, but uh, remote actually is more productive than not remote. Now, not for every job, but for most New York City jobs. Like people say, well, look, you know, Detroit disappeared, uh, but Detroit's, you know, New York City is much more vibrant and resilient than Detroit. That's true, but, uh, or I shouldn't trash Detroit, but Detroit actually was harder for for it to go uh, to, to the situation where it is because Detroit, you couldn't be remote. You had to go build a car. In right. New York City, finance and media, you don't. Re- it's just ones and zeros. You don't really have to be there to put together a, a financial package. That can all be done with ones and zeros. It's remote, and and those types of jobs are more productive remote. It turns out, and there's scientific studies on this. And so, we started to see this in 2008, but the bandwidth. The average bandwidth per user in New York City in 2008 was about 2.5 megabits per second. Now it's you know, up to 300 megabits per second, but let's just say the average is 30 megabits per second, and that's enough for high-quality video all the time. Like I can have all my TVs on and still do remote meetings with you all throughout the day, and uh, you know, that's, a, that's a big difference like that never existed in history before, that now we can actually go remote and it's as if we're all in the same building because I can call you and see you and talk to you without moving from my desk. It's actually better than even like getting everybody into a conference room for a meeting that nobody wanted to go to. And some people say, oh, well, people always want to see each other. That's not that true. That's just sometimes true, not true for you know everybody i don't know what the numbers are but it doesn't seem like it's more than 50% that people are that eager to go back to their cubicles and so uh and again it's not up to the individuals companies have a massive cost savings by making everyone go remote the real reason and so what does this all mean well it means there's a flight of capital both residential you know both the new yorkers who are leaving from every class, you know, lower, middle, upper class. And there's a flight of companies leaving. And the ta- that means, means tourism is affected. Broadway's not opening till at least the spring. So what does that mean? It means every, not only all the actors who had dreamed all their lives of performing don't have that opportunity and they're going to have to look for alternatives, but all the employees in the ecosystem around Broadway – And that means all the tourism goes down, which means the ecosystem around tourism, hotels, subways, public transit, and so on. And so what happens then? Like, do we just ignore it? Do we say when a vaccine comes, it all comes back? No, because in in the time, it's not like people are just sitting and saying, boy, I can't wait. I'm just going to turn myself off and put myself in the closet and then reactivate when New York City reopens. I'm gonna figure out things to do with my life, and so, and, and the remote people, those companies are not going back, and we don't know about any of these vacancies or evictions or, you know, even schools. What what new roles they will have? You know, right now already, there's no cases or deaths in New York City, but every school is either closed or remote or hybrid. Uh, so, so my my, so it all adds up to. Rising deficits, because New York City costs a lot of money to run in a pandemic, and the deficit is a is billion dollars higher than anybody thought it would be. And uh, there's going to be much lower tax revenues. I mean, the top 1% of New York gives over 40% of the tax revenues to the city. So if a good chunk of that top 1% leaves, plus the offices leave, plus tourism goes down, we might be talking about a 50%, 60% or more cut in revenues so what happens well we already see what happens and again none of this is my opinion at all like i'm just c- quoting things in every single situation here but what happens when you know deficits are rising and revenues go down Well, we know from other cities what happens they go bankrupt or they turn into detroit but what we already are starting to see what's going to happen in new york is that there's unrest and chaos and de Blasio the other day, uh, or at least a city spokesperson, announced that there could be 22,000 layoffs on August 31st, so coming up in a few days. And the layoffs will be EMT workers, police, teachers, MTA workers, you know, all, all sorts of people critical to the running, garbage collectors. So that, what does that mean? It means more garbage on the streets, means less police protection, and already the police has been, you know, the plain plain plainclothes police have been disbanded. Um, You know, the EMT workers who were the frontline workers during the virus, some of them are going to get fired. Teachers are thinking of going on strike. MTA workers run public transit. And this is just the beginning. We haven't even seen the decrease in tax revenues yet. I mean, we've we've seen a decrease in sales tax revenues. So from that, they have to get rid of people. But we haven't seen the full decrease in you know property tax and income tax revenues yet, and so this is not like an easy it's not like resilience or grit brings this back. This is a very financial issue and a very human one, but grit doesn't doesn't bridge it. like people need jobs people you know people need you know the city runs on rent and tourism and taxes and sales taxes. And, and then the city has enormous, enormous services that it gives to people and those services are going to be cut. And so it's not like people think, oh, well, New York City is going to finally return to that artistic utopia. I remember from my youth, first off, disregarding the question of whether or not it was a utopia, it's just not going to be so fast. It's going to be, it's going to be a, 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 very painful and perhaps long, decades long decline. And unless something is done, which is really my point, is to make people aware this is a problem and it's a serious problem that needs to be addressed at every level of community and leadership. And so I wrote this article and (laughs) (laughs) now now I'm going to narrow in. Uh, I wrote this article and it got, you know, I saw that people were emotional in both directions to the article, but... Okay. And then I noticed people were starting to share it. Next thing I know, it's like everywhere. And everybody from like billionaires were talking about it to, you know, everyday people, a lot of a lot of New Yorkers who didn't know me at all were completely just angry, like so angry and just called me the worst names I've ever been called and like trashing and I whatever. I I knew they were angry. And I was for for a while I got Sucked in, like why is why is everybody angry at me? I didn't do it, and I was, but I, you know, I pulled myself out of that. But it was definitely like a painful moment or two last week, and you know, I went on some TV. I, I, I the New York Post reprinted the article, so it gave it like a second wave, and then I wake up yesterday, and Seinfeld had was a New York Times op-ed. Like I woke up to people. Facebook messaging me, "Hey, puss, wake up," because I guess right. Seinfeld called me a puss in the article, and I looked at the article and it was like he didn't address. I got his. I, I I I got his passion for New York City, but he didn't address any of my issues. He just kind of spent ninety-five percent of the article trashing me personally, which really surprised me, and and I have to admit that upset me a lot and but again i'm an adult i can handle it and uh you know and then he said about five percent saying well new york city's got grit they always come back and which was the point i addressed in my article you know i lived right next to ground 0 9-11. i lived on wall street during 2008 and i i was optimistic then but now the situation's very different and so so again i I, I didn't and then there was this enormous amount of hate again in the morning yesterday, uh, mostly New Yorkers who didn't know me but, you know, saw Jerry's article and again, which was just like a, a kind of attack piece on me personally. Like I don't know, he was even you know, I was I've been visiting Florida since you know, around July and some months later, but he was basically just not only attacking me, but attacking Florida, which is weird. I mean, I live in New York City. From New York City, and uh, but he—I don't know—he was just—I never met him before. He's performed at the comedy club I own, but I never met him. He just was like—I don't know—I've never seen someone attack someone else so personally in a New York Times op-ed page, or any op-ed page for that matter. And so I was getting like a lot of anger and again hate mail, death threats. You know, you should be hung or whatever all sorts of things
2: and uh you know or get
0: you know get out, good riddance get out of new york city and there's no point in responding to everybody like i'm not going anywhere and but then but, so then i i i reached out to the new york times i said can i write a rebuttal they never responded the new york post reached out and said you want to write a rebuttal i said sure here it is and so i kind of summarized my thoughts uh you know in a little more uh cleanly and and then I think by the end of the day most people were had kind of the tide had turned and people were realizing oh Jerry's peace was just his personal attack and James was making sense. We've got to deal with these issues. And you know, again I've been involved in the community. Uh next week Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough president who's also a candidate for mayor is coming on my podcast. He's a good friend of mine. And uh l- late last night I saw De Blasio tweeted Seinfeld's article and said, uh, you know, a a born New Yorker knows will survive. And I responded and I said, you know, I'm glad you're on Twitter instead of helping the twenty two thousand people you're about to lay off. And you know, that got some some play and you know, and now I'm still thinking of solutions. Like again, I'm gonna talk to mayoral candidates uh I've been you know helping out local businesses since the beginning i've been um I'm now kind of putting together a list of things I would do if I was in the city and losing my job and you know what should I think about next and you know so i'm I'm continuing thinking about what could be done as solutions, which is my whole point in the beginning, and that's where I'm at. <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, the parallel that that I came up with was you reminded me a lot, and the response to the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel, that everything is burning, and, and the response to a completely accurate breakdown of the horrors that are happening is, get the fuck out of this city, asshole. Like, like... But like nobody is taking on the merits of any of your arguments, and I mean, let's start with Seinfeld because it wasn't just grit; it was the energy of the city, like the almost metaphysical energy of the city that's going to transcend this. I mean, he referred to you as like a whimpering, whining, pots and all of that, but. I couldn't help thinking.
0: Thanks for, thanks for reminding me of the the great <laughs> – well, uh... no, I'm just kidding.
2: No, but I mean it, it was striking to me because what Seinfeld was saying in that article, as far as I could tell, is what's the substance of his solution to any of these problems that you've raised? He doesn't really take on any of the issues that you raised. And it reminded me a lot – I mean I've lived in New York City for 10 years, but as a Canadian – we don't go around saying that we're the greatest all the time because we don't feel like we're the greatest on any level, but it's especially weird to see America in times of trouble constantly rely on that refrain. Like Trump saying we're the best at handling coronavirus, despite the fact that you've got 1400 people dying here and four people dying in Canada and many other countries like you're handling it the worst. And I'm wondering how, that kind of Seinfeld, it just felt like propaganda. There was no substance to his optimism at all beyond energy. And it reminded me that we've been talking only about New York here, and you're right, you've got, you know, it's the seventh visited city in the world. You had 65 million people visit it in 2019, which was a record. How many people are going to visit it in 2020? But I I wonder if you see New York as a canary in the coal mine for the United States, as we're reminded endlessly in the rhetoric of our leaders that this is the greatest country on earth, and because it's God's chosen place, we're going to solve all of these problems, we don't ever seem to talk about these problems and how to actually deal with them meaningfully. And Seinfeld, at the beginning of his op-ed, says, could you imagine going to war with a guy like James? And I thought, isn't that the problem? We're not going to war with this. We're we're like in a marriage. Would you say that one of the partners saying, look, we have all of these problems, dear, that we need to deal with, is somebody that you would never want to go to war with? Or would you say how 50-year marriages last is because we don't ignore problems and we try to meaningfully address them and solve them? But first, we have to be honest about what these problems are. Right.
0: I I agree. And – you make a great point that there's this whole notion of you know America always has a frontier. We always conquer that frontier. But America has gone through a lot of severe difficulties sure. in the past 200 years. We had a sure. civil war that, that was devastating. We've had cities that were once huge that are now not – nobody thinks of Scranton, Pennsylvania as a huge city. No one thinks of Baltimore as a huge city or even Philadelphia is a is second-tier city. That was the best – the biggest city in the U.S. for a while, I think, or one of the biggest. And, you know, things change and and borders start to disappear. And This is a phenomenon that we've been seeing all around the world, but particularly the U.S. You know, it used to be you had to be in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Chicago. But now the good thing is because of remote and, and other things, there's, a, there's going to be a decentralization of opportunity for young people. They don't have to just move to New York City to succeed. They don't have to just move to L.A. to succeed. They could be anywhere. And I think Seinfeld and others might be ignoring that. Or I I really can't speak to Seinfeld's agenda other than addressing just what he said. But like I agree with him about the energy. I was here in the 70s. I was a kid. And... Uh, you know, in the '80s, and then after school, I moved here in '94, in and there was always this great, beautiful, magnificent energy. But there's this is not the '70s. In the '70s, it didn't close down for what probably is going to be a year for many businesses. Uh, you know, the the, the financial New York was always the financial capital of the world. You had to be here in the '70s, no matter what was happening in. In, on 42nd Street or other areas of town. You had to be in New York City for media, for advertising, for finance. Now that's been shut down for five, six months and people realize, oh, we survived that. We didn't have to be here. And so, uh, you know, that those were the wheels that kept the city going So it could so artists could move here and explore and invent and innovate. But now, you know, it's a good thing that, that's going to be dis- dispersed throughout the country, maybe throughout the world, right. and you know, uh, again, in Seinfeld, you know, from what I understand, he's he's in the Hamptons. He's been there since March. I that was told to me. I don't know that for sure, but uh, I'm not sure. I, I think what happened was is that, and this is what I respect is that I think I probably scared people too much. Like some people can't. Just leave because they own real estate here, and I've been in that situation myself. In nine eleven, I was going broke, and I I was I already had my apartment for sale. And then nine eleven happened. You know, Ground Zero was three or four blocks away. I couldn't. Obviously, it was a horrible day for much worse day for many people than me. For me, I couldn't sell my place, and I was scared. And if someone had written an article like this, I imagine that would have maybe even more made, made me even more panicked I don't think I would have just taken it out on the writer unless unless he was lying or unless there was some egregious fact he was missing for some reason but you know Seinfeld didn't didn't point any of those facts out
2: he just Well, well but I just I just sorry to interrupt but I mean I just want to say though that I mean we we are also all of these issues you're talking about with regards to New York as you say they're not opinions you're not right you're not editorializing about it. You're giving data that's reliable. And I just I just had this similar feeling that when I hear the rhetoric of, of Biden and Trump trying to be our leader, where less than half the country even votes for our leaders for various reasons. That yeah,
0: or, or only 8% voted for our mayor.
2: Right, 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 right. And there's a massive debt in New York right now, uh, as you say, it's a billion dollars more than they thought it would be. But we're also in a country that now the national debt is $27 trillion. And when I hear from the two people running for president in November, that this is the greatest country in the world, etc. It reminded me of that article that came out, I think, in April, I think maybe it was the Atlantic that was saying what we're seeing now is evidence of a failed state. And where with healthcare, with the cost of education, with you know the New York subway being the least efficient in the world, in the industrialized world, um, with the lack of faith in leadership in Congress, uh, with the, the dysfunctionality in our politics, um, having five percent, having five percent of the world's population and twenty-five percent of the world's prison population, is it that what you raised by offering empirical data? is just a reminder that our fantasy of ourselves is in such immense contrast to all of the data that is sort of out there about major metrics that support that we are doing so well. You
0: You know, that's a really fascinating point that look at how our leaders are communicating with us, basically by, you know, rhetoric. And so what's rhetoric? It's basically kind of the, the language of ideology as opposed to solutions and facts. It's like, don't worry, God will save us. Or don't worry, um, capitalism will save us. Or communism will save us. Or, you know, we're going to suffer through hard times or so we're going to be great again. You know, these are slogans and not solutions. Right. And, you know, you're right. Maybe, maybe we've gotten too used to, as a society, or maybe we've always been that way, um, maybe we've gotten too used to the idea of, using rhetoric to communicate really important messages, like messages that affect everybody's life. And we're stuck in that. Like, y- you look at these politicians, and they're kind of, they've kind of normalized lying. Like, on on every side, they, they, they lie, and then when you point it out, they're like, oh, that's just politics. You know, you'll see what happens when blah, blah, blah. And I don't know if politics should be about lying, but you know, they, that clearly they know the audience they're communicating to. And I'm not saying the U S voter population is, is not intelligent, but it's just become this pattern of, you know, shorter and shorter. I mean, if you look at uh, the size of election coverage, the the length of election coverage in the U S between 1960 and now it's, it's gone from minutes to seconds. And so like Biden at a campaign said this, and it's like three words, uh, And it used to be three minutes of coverage in 1960. And, you know, so I wonder, we just need clips, like, you know, America is this, or whatever, or stop tyranny, or stop this, and instead of dealing with actual issues, like, I don't know, is there an infrastructure problem in New York? Most bridges are 70 years, I mean, not in New York, in the United States, most bridges are 70 years old, the lifespan of a bridge might be 30 or 40 years What's the issue? Is are, are Do we actually, are we a net producer of oil or are we, you know, what's going on with foreign relations? Like,
2: well, one in five kids doesn't have enough food, let alone yeah. the issues you're talking about. One in five Americans doesn't have enough food. Like these are third world conditions that we're right. talking and, about. And, and And, you know, everybody would say a year ago, oh, well, we can't pay for
0: the trillion dollars that it would take to, do X, Y, or Z. Let's say feed everybody or fix all the birds. We can't pay for that. Like, how are we going to pay for that? But it's not, it's not socialist, ca- capitalist, or Marxist to say, okay, maybe a year ago, I didn't even think, like, maybe we couldn't pay for it. But clearly, we just printed up $2 trillion and probably more if you look at the Federal Reserve balance sheet. And nobody, nobody was complaining then. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, we can't right. do this. We just did it. And, and, and the world survives till now. We, we printed up a trillion dollars in 2008 as well, or 2009, and the world survived. In fact, I talked to somebody from the Federal Reserve. I had Jim McKelvey, founder of Square and also deputy chairman of the St. Louis Fed. I had him on my podcast. And he said, we could do this because there's overwhelming demand for the dollar around the world. Uh, so you you can borrow the money and there is demand for it and the interest rates are almost 0%, so you're hardly paying back any money and you're spread out over 30 years or however long these treasury bills are. So turns out we can do it and we could have done it a year ago and we'll, we'll be able to do it next year. So, you know, because the U.S. economy is by far the biggest economy, it's, not, it's neither capitalist or socialist to, you know, borrow money that's part of that's part of an economic system if you have strong credit and you know some people would disagree. You know, some people say you can't print money like it's a printing machine. But that only looks at the supply side of the equation and not the demand side. Everybody around the world wants to convert their currencies to dollars, so that's lucky for us. So that keep actually the Fed wants inflation up and right now we're in a no one's admitting it, but we're in a deflationary, a massive deflationary spiral right now. And that's, as Warren Buffett has pointed out, that's a much more serious problem. We were only, in U.S. history, we've been in deflation only twice before, at least since 1900. Uh, in 2009, there was slight deflation. And in the Great Depression, there was deflation. 1932, there was deflation. That's a massive problem. That That was a period with 20% unemployment, which is kind of you know, analogous to what we're experiencing now. And we don't want to be in a deflationary cycle again. So the Fed is desperately trying to print up enough money to have inflation, but there's so much demand for the dollar, they can't even inflate and the economy's closed. So nobody's can buy things to inflate. So, you know, and I know it's open in a lot of states, but it still feels, has a feel of being closed. And, yeah. you know, then everyone says, well, what's going on with the stock market? How come the stock market's disconnected from the economy, you know, there's all these millions of jobs gone. Why, how could the stock market be at an all-time highs? Well, two reasons. One is the stock market index, and I don't want to get all wonky, but the stock market index is what's called market cap weighted. So the bigger companies have more influence on where the index goes. And so the five biggest companies, essentially Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, you know, Netflix, whatever, I don't, uh, Apple, um, they're up huge on the year. And on average, the other 495 in the S&P 500, I believe, are down on the year or break even. And so it's really we're really being driven just by the best, most capitalized, most well-financed companies. And then reason number two is if every mom-and-pop cafe between me and Starbucks shuts down permanently, Starbucks, which didn't shut down because it's better finance and it's a public company and so on, Starbucks gains market share, makes more in profits, and the stock does better. So, you know, there's all these weird, nothing, nothing is as it seems right now. The the, I I tell people the economy is not up or down; it's tilted, and it's it's like as if the Earth tilts on its axis. Things will change. The North Pole will change, and that's what's happened to the economy. But people wanna people wanna have a new normal or or even a new abnormal. And it's, there's nothing now like what was before. It's just different.
2: And we have to adjust as a society. Well, so, so I mean, when you, when you lay out these issues, and I saw there was a response by Ariyama C. Long. The title uh, yeah. was, Who the fuck are you to tell me my city's dead? And it was signed, a native New Yorker, capital letters. Well, so are you. And Seinfeld's attack on you also is, as you said, mostly ad hominem not really dealing with the substance of of what you're addressing. And I, I wonder why you think it is that we're arguing over whether New York remains the greatest city in the world or has the greatest energy or America is the greatest country in the world instead of arguing with, I think, practical ways of addressing these problems to rebuild. What, like, yeah. Why is there so much dysfunction with what seems an obvious path forward that we can all agree we want to rebuild to move in a positive direction rather than this weird propaganda ideology debate?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, I guess I'd like to think I know, but I'm not – it could be what you said before. Like we, we, we're we used to speaking in rhetoric now and not in in real – you know, real terms that have influence that that can help people.
2: And I just wanted to add, I mean, Seinfeld at the beginning of his op-ed said, like described first getting his first apartment in New York City and that when he went out to his car, his car had been towed or there was a ticket or something, but but symbolizing it was a shitty day. And then he still says, but I remember looking around knowing that I'd moved to the greatest place that I'd ever seen in my life. Where it's like again, it's like reaffirming this propaganda that we hear that like that's enough of a solution that I'm in the greatest place that it will solve everything. And yeah, and
0: and and let's also not forget he, he lived in L.A. probably right after he wrote that he lived in L.A. for 30 years, right. and he, and right. now he and now the entire pandemic he's he's you know for someone who says he wouldn't want to go to war with me he's living in a, a You know, a a 30,000 square foot house with bodyguards and 50 Ferraris parked in the driveway. Like, you know, I don't know, again, why he had such vitriol in his piece. It really, you know, he's been like a hero of mine and it, it disappointed me, but... Again, neither here nor there, but... um,
2: Do you you think, though, on some level, because, I mean, I've seen it also when people try to attack you, they mention that you were a hedge fund manager, that you're a part owner in a comedy club. Is it that people from his class, in a sense, shouldn't be talking this way? Like, because, you know, Madonna from her bathtub in a $40 million apartment on the Upper East Side saying, we're all New Yorkers, we're all in this together. It's like... Her being that out of touch with how many look, the wildly disproportionate way that this is hitting people of color, um, poor people, um, essential workers. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are doormen in New York City, where they have to leave their families and expose themselves to danger where they work, and people in their buildings, um, the upstairs dwellers, are reminding them how lucky they are to have a job. Like, they have to have that every day on top of the risks that they're encountering with people infected living above them. Yeah, I mean,
0: you're right. I, I don't know why we're, we, you know, even the notion of a city, I mean, think about the dollar bill, right? I'm, I'm not like one of these people who says, oh, you know, the dollar bill is just a piece of paper, we, we, you know, gold is real, blah, 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 Uh you know, so people call that fiat money when money is only valuable if you trust the government; otherwise, it's a piece of paper. But that's the kind of currency we and almost every other government, or, or actually every other government in the world, has. But 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 think about why we trust that dollar. It is so loaded with mythology. There's a pyramid with an eye on it. There's "In God We Trust." There's George Washington, the father of our nation. So this one. Piece of paper, the, the the dollar bill is just loaded with all this symbolism, and and mythology and storytelling. To, so so we believe it. So so we, so if we don't believe in one story, we at least believe in uh, in God we trust. And you know, again, what's happening in New York City? Oh, it's this fabled mythological city. Which, by the way, I love the city. It's made all my dreams come true. And you it, make
2: that clear in your piece. It's not as though you're shitting on the city or shitting on right. its energy. And you were there for 9-11. You were there for the 2008 collapse. You have five kids. There. It's not like you don't have skin in the game. I mean, right. so I, I, I find it funny, like like that woman, uh, Ariyama C. Long, makes the point. The only thing that died was convenience and complacency, which is a clear fuck you saying that you you're not representative of of New York. And I, I mean, I understand that the more p- people challenged with unemployment and everything, including me, I lost my job. I can't teach boxing there or do be a travel writer or cover sports. <laughs> but, but the idea of just not taking on the merits of your argument is what I find so interesting because when yeah. you're saying all, all these apartments that can't be rented, that there's going to be no revenue, that there's already a massive deficit, the remote, the, the remote workers and everything, I don't hear anybody really addressing how to bring this back or that unemployment, like the $600 a week has been gone, 25% of people haven't paid their rent. That's not just convenience and complacency that that has been removed. There's a huge amount of stuff that is may never bounce back that's not being talked about what we need to focus on is the positive and the energy and and how new york is is amazing and wonderful it just seems kind of crazy to me
0: yeah and 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 look uh i don't know even though as you like i mentioned in the, my original article what i had been through clearly living four blocks from ground zero was not about convenience for for me not only no. that i didn't mention and i never really mentioned i was in the world trade center you know that day that morning and, uh, but you know, I don't mention it because again, a lot of people had it a lot worse, and I don't try sure. to um, rub people in it. But I still have my my own New York City stories. Like I've been, and I don't expect her to read all my writing or know all my story. But I've gone broke in this city many times, where I've had to start from scratch and struggle like 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 everyone. It's not like I come from some privileged class. I paid my way through college came here with nothing, and and so on, similar to a young man named Jerry Seinfeld in the 70s, so uh, you know, and then her her article, I think, closed with or the editor's note was, you know, Hope James, you know, jumps in the ocean with a lifesaver made out of lead, so here's an article in a newspaper basically wishing I was dead.
2: Yeah, so and her, I mean, Seinfeld made the same point, the only thing that the only thing that was really lost is you. Your, it's your problem. It's not our problem. It's all you. All of these issues you point out, none of them are real. It's all about you. Yeah, Where, so I don't really yeah.
0: understand why... I, I was upset by that kind of mythology that rose around my article because that wasn't... Yeah. And and I think I was pretty clear in writing the article. Like I start off saying, I love the city and... Uh I don't know which part didn't translate but you know again like I said by the end of the day yesterday when I wrote my rebuttal to Seinfeld's piece that I think people understood okay I'm just I'm making logical sense and this guy just viciously attacked me I don't I I understand actually why other people did because they're scared I don't really understand why Jerry Seinfeld did <laughs> he's not scared I don't know what he is I don't know what his agenda was It disturbs me that someone like him had some agenda. But, uh, you know, I understand where these other people are coming from. They're scared, and I would be scared too.
2: Do you think that, I mean, one of the most – because, I mean, what I'm so interested in with what your piece is, and Seinfeld's, is the reaction, is the way in which it's taking the pulse of the country. Because if you look at the comment section on the Times to Seinfeld's article, it's unanimous support for what he's saying. It's just I'm from London. I visited New York. You're absolutely right. The energy here is incredible. And I'm just thinking like if the house is on fire, don't we need to talk about that instead of how great the house was before it was on fire?
0: Yeah, I agree. And I I'm usually not at a loss for words as evidenced by these articles, but I don't really know why other than I definitely triggered a huge fear component for people you know and whether i could call that a wake up call or not whatever i don't know but so i could see why people were initially afraid um whether rationally or irrationally at my article or nobody should have been upset at me but that's just my opinion and i don't really know what happened to be honest i don't know why people were the way they were it didn't seem it didn't seem fair to me and it didn't seem like um it was going to resolve any problems that i was pointing out well, so, and so I don't I just, know. I don't know why it, ha- why it happened the way it did. I don't know why Jerry Seinfeld had to respond. I don't know what was going on. What audience? Maybe people are pandering to. I just don't know.
2: Well, when you, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with what you were doing. Was looking at the issues that that we need to come to bear to to grapple with in order to address what these problems are. I mean, it's not. You're not you're not responsible with coming up with all of the solutions, but it staggers me that clearly part of the purchase your article got from places like the post and Seinfeld and stuff is why is this guy assembling all of these issues in one place where it it didn't seem like, like why were people gobsmacked by you just putting together readily findable data about what the problems are? Do you know what I mean? Like, like aren't, or, isn't the New York Times supposed to do this for us? I mean, aren't are there other institutions that should be charged with this responsibility?
0: Yeah, or if Seinfeld's going to write an op-ed, don't shouldn't shouldn't there be some I don't know fact-checking on his op-ed? Or I mean, remember a few months ago someone wrote an op-ed, some sitting U.S. senator wrote an op-ed, and the editors got fired for publishing. Someone else's op-ed. I didn't read his op-ed. I don't know what it says. I guess he said what he was thinking. But even if it was insane what he was saying, this is a guy who was elected by his state, whether he's Republican or Democrat. I don't even. I'm assuming he's Republican because that's probably why they fired some people. But you know, nobody gets nobody's. But okay, it's Jerry Seinfeld, a comedian, who's attacking some guy who's pointing out problems. That's ah, it's Jerry Seinfeld. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Right. as opposed to actually dealing with the problems. And like you said, it's the New York times. Let's explore the facts here. Maybe we need to. And by the way, the New York times, I, if I wanted to source every one of my points, I can use the New York times by itself. Cause they've written about all these things. So it's not like they've been ignoring it. They've been writing about these things too. So right. again, I don't know. And I understand why I stirred up emotion. I just don't know why I stirred up hate towards me. And, and so, my, but my goal is to continue and find solutions. And so, solutions, you know, outside of a bailout, which may or may not be a solution. It might just be a band-aid. Even if you wrote New York City a check for 10 billion, it, which is the deficit this year, or 9 billion is a deficit. But even if you wrote them a check for 10 billion, it's not. That's just a band-aid. It doesn't solve the problem that one in four people are going to get evicted. That will require another 50 billion. So. Uh, You know, it doesn't solve the problem of all the companies, uh, you know, all the office buildings that will be empty. But so, so outside of a bailout though, solutions are for the individual. So here's 10 things you might be able to do to make a living instead of going back to working at the cafe. Or here's, uh, here's a bunch of GoFundMes that companies all over, you know, restaurants all over New York city have set up for, to help pay their employees and make their bills. So, The the community, which which is what I think should in general happen in the United States, the community, the wealthier people in the community who have been successful, instead of, you know, always arguing that they shouldn't be taxed, prove why you shouldn't be taxed. Give, Give to the community, allocate, show that you can allocate money better than the government and that goes a long way towards, you know, benefiting capitalism, benefiting the community, keeping New York City going. And then there's always the third point, which is a, one solution is for people who can do it, is leave or not move to New York or, or some of these big cities. Like, look, Nashville is going to have huge benefits. Austin is going to have huge benefits. Denver, maybe, who knows, maybe St. Louis, I don't know, Miami. Who knows, any of these cities, you know, there's cities in Montana that I know people in L.A. are moving to. So this could be a great renaissance for the country itself as people automatically find solutions that work for themselves as opposed to getting angry at me or defending the mythology of a city. Cities cities change. Cities grow and die all through history. I'm not saying give up on New York, particularly like a lot of people still live here, a lot of people have families here, a lot of people... um uh, are forced to stay here because they can't sell their houses. Okay, let's see what happens. But you still have to, you know, even after 9-11, I couldn't sell my apartment. I still had to be aggressive about how I was going to survive and feed my family. And and it was painful and it was hard and I was scared, but I had to figure it out. I had no other choice. And it's the same thing for a, a lot of people right now. And I've been through it and I want to help And I want to look at things realistically. Like, even in in 2008, 2009, I was going on CNBC, and I was saying, okay, look, there was this bailout for for the United States, not for any one area, and this is what's going to happen, and we don't have to worry. Uh, And I outlined the reasons why we don't have to worry. And those reasons mostly came true. But now there's something to worry about for the first time in a very long time, and You know, it's funny, in in January, um, I remember when Wuhan was shutting down, I did not think the virus would necessarily come over here. I wasn't worried about that. But I was stunned when I realized American manufacturing had absolutely no plan B. Like, I I didn't realize how 100% of American manufacturing, even our antibiotics, even food packaging, we'd send the food there, they'd package it, and it'd come back here. It was all in China. And so I, was, I did get worried. I remember staying up all night one night and I was worried, what happens if the supply chain disappears? And so I, I called up all my friends who were in the fashion industry and I said, "Buy before China closes for the new year, the Chinese New Year, buy as much clo- dresses, fabrics, whatever you get from China, buy as much of it as you can because they're not going to reopen at the end of, of that new year. And so so, you know, maybe one followed my advice and the most didn't, but uh, I was scared then and my wife was telling me, don't worry, we'll we'll be preppers, we can survive in the woods. And I was like, I don't want to survive in the woods. Like, I like my life. I like the status quo. And maybe that's a little bit of what's happening now is that I I took away people's sense that the status quo will return. And so they took it out on me. You know, you remember in the beginning of this pandemic um, in Columbus Circle Trader Joe's, uh, two women were fighting over toilet paper. They were on the ground of the Trader Joe's, two adult women in their forties or whatever and and they were fighting over the last roll of toilet paper. People kind of revert to this child in them in a bad way. you know childs also are, are have a good way, but it's a negative way they were, They were just fighting, and I think that's what's kind of been happening all across the country now and particularly in large cities as we are in the fifth month of this, this pandemic.
2: Do you, do you think, I mean, I, a lot of the, the work I've done has been looking at comparing uh, a decade of traveling to Cuba to the United States. And I always found it fascinating that when the Soviet union cut out their funding in Cuba and suddenly they were an economic free Everybody around the world, especially the United States, just laughed at communism, the idea that communism could solve anything. But when we were on the brink of global collapse in 2008, nobody calls capitalism into question. It's just if we had the right people in Wall Street, we could make this work. We had bad people in there, but we, we can get right people in there and fix this. And I remember there was a philosopher, Slavoj Zizek, who said, isn't it interesting that we look at quote-unquote, true believers of communism and say they've drunk the Kool-Aid, but anybody who believes in capitalism will accept the world blowing up before we question even modest reforms of our system. And I, I wonder, like, it just seems crazy to me that New York, being as wealthy as it is, still feels like the epidemics of, of homelessness, um, how much people pay with their rent, um, you know, third world conditions around a lot of that city, like it's an incredible upstairs, downstairs society uh, of people where, I mean, just just like the low income housing and, and there's so many issues. And I just wonder when we're doing so well economically, people have so much money. You, we're going to have the first, Bezos is going to be a trillionaire, I think they said in seven years or something. Yeah. Why are we always on the brink? Like, why can we not do anything Like, when we have well, so much you know, money to do it?
0: It's a great point. Like, and Nassim Taleb, in his book, Anti-Fragile, and, and by the way, Nassim Taleb, I love his books, not for the books, but for the titles. Because <laughs> once you read the title, you never have to actually read the book. Right. Like, you know, anti-fragile, or, you know, fragility means you hit something, it breaks. Resilient means you hit something, it comes back. Anti-fragility means you hit something, it comes back stronger. Sure. And so clearly the US was not even resilient. The average American had four hundred dollars savings in the bank. The average restaurant exactly, had, had exactly. sixteen days of cash on hand. And isn't it funny? Just just I knew this in March. In March on my podcast, I said if we're if this lockdown goes past April fifteenth, and I'm not saying whether it should or shouldn't, I wasn't making a medical opinion. I'm just saying there's going to be economic unrest and we don't it's going to be unpredictable after that. And that's essentially what what happened. We were anti-fragile. You can't, we couldn't. It just took two months in our entire economy. I mean, fifty-five million people ultimately applied for unemployment insurance at some point. Right. It's more right. than one out of three workers. So we were so fragile. It's it's scary. But to your point on capitalism, I don't I don't know the answer because you know let's take capitalism versus Marxism both are like extreme pure theories. And, you know, some people argue China is more capitalist than us or we're getting more and more socialist. So there's a spectrum. And so, so but let's, let's take a step back and say, well, what, what does capitalism mean in America? Why has America succeeded? It's because of innovationism. Like we have basically innovated everything from, you know, the entire industrial revolution started between let's say England and the US but but then mostly the US and you know all the way from the steam engine to the fastest computers to rocket ships to nuclear energy to everything so we innovated and each innovation created massive industries you know let's say from let's say from 1900 to 1970 we innovated so much in transportation in moving things faster that created millions and millions of jobs. And, created... I, and,
2: and I want to be clear, I'm not in opposition to capitalism. I'm just saying it's really fascinating to me that when I lived in New York for 10 years and we have the worst subway system in the industrialized world, and I'm walking around Park Avenue and it's like, there's the Koch brothers, the, you know, the billionaires yeah. everywhere. How the moment I go to Madrid or Paris or any European major city, it's 10 times more efficient and reliable. And I'm like, how do we not have the money to deal with this? How is there always a massive deficit? How, how have we, why are we always on the bank, brink of bankruptcy? And, yeah. and as a country, as I say, I mean, $27 trillion deficit. I thought it's the greatest economy that's ever been produced. Like I'm wondering how Americans are internalizing the such glaring, egregious contradictions of reality versus rhetoric. Right. I, I agree.
0: And I, I wonder, I mean, part of that deficit spending is, you know, perhaps for services that were ne- not needed, like, uh, you know, the military, you know, we're in our military is in 150 different countries, you know, and we've been supporting that, you know, and how many wars have we been in And have been mistakes? It almost seems like since 1945, everyone agrees every single military adventure in the U.S. has been a mistake. And, uh you know, what are we doing? It's cost trillions. How many, how many, A $100 trillion maybe to have the military in, in 150 countries in war after war. We've been in war
2: constantly since since
0: the country was born. And which,
2: which which if we use that same money, we would have a universal basic income. We'd have free tuition for school. We would have health care right. for everybody. It's, right. I mean, it, all the money is there to do it
0: exactly like look at look at Canada. they're they're not you know they don't even i I don't even know if they have an army, I could probably push their army all you know over with one hand, like james, james eighteen twelve you invaded us uh, yeah, won. so you yeah, we won, we won and we that means our <laughs> army defends defends you guys now, god damn it yeah, but but look, they have who knows if it's the best or or the worst, like the people argue, but they have health care, they have education, they have grants for artists, you know they have relatively peaceful nobody around the world hates them or nukes them or anything or wants to knock their buildings down and all we've done is created bad will around the country and in, had sent off 18 year olds to kill other 18 year olds and then people argue with me on that like well you know patriotism yeah why are we i don't want to send my 18 year olds to kill other 18 year olds there's no no excuse for that ever I was actually talking to the Libertarian candidate for president, and I asked her, what war do you think was justified? And I thought she was going to say the Civil War, in which case I don't have an argument. She said, well, maybe the Revolutionary War. And I'm like, no. Why did we need to – Canada left England bloodlessly. You know, Australia left England. Why did we need to, you know, kill a bunch of kids to save a bunch of Boston merchants? And you know, and then England got rid of slavery in eighteen thirty one so maybe our slaves would have been freed earlier if we'd stayed with England. And, you know I was just making playing the devil's advocate, but uh you know all these things that we hold to religious veneration almost these stories of our our growth and our birth and and then New York City and so on they're just stories and and you know it's like George Washington chopping down the cherry tree or I won't tell a lie. And, sure. you know, the, these things are just myths and and we have grown up with them and it's hard to abandon them. And then the great American dream was own your own real estate. Well, why was that the great American dream? It's because that's a $15 trillion industry in the banks. And of course you want people to own real estate and take out loans. That the That's how the banks make 100% of their money. Like, they they hold your money in a checking account. They lend it out at 6% interest. So all these things, you have to question, what's the real reason? There's a good reason. Oh, I'm going to own a house. I can't get kicked out, which is not true. And then there's a real reason. Banks, it's a $15 trillion industry. So, uh, you know, boiling this all down to New York, again, it gets down to how do we clear away the myths and the, you know, this is my New York. I'm not going to let someone tell me blah he should die instead or I can't go to war with this guy I'm gonna even though I'm in my 80 bedroom house with 50 Ferraris and bodyguards all around I'm not gonna go to war with some guy who left his apartment when people were trying to break into it (laughs) like uh so yeah I don't I I think there does need to be um a sense that real solutions and real problems need to be identified and people need to, to work on their biases perhaps. Or individually, each one of us can do what we can, whether it's through writing or podcasts or developing solutions or working with leaders or bailing out and and try to solve problems and ignore kind of the hatred that might come your way occasionally. and then And then along the way, rethinking the system because there's certainly flaws. Like, you know, there's the more power you give authority, you don't know if they're smart uh, at everything. Like uh, the the leaders of the country have to be smart at like everything from the environment to the economy to law enforcement to education. Nobody is is that smart. And so what we see is a failure of every institution. And I'm not even saying this in this anarchist way. It's just there's got to be You know, like at the beginning of this pandemic, in early March, people were already staying home. I wasn't letting my kids to school anyway. I was staying home and having business meetings remote before the lockdowns. At some point, you have to not control the people, but trust them. And that's innovationism, really, is when you trust the people to do good for their community. And, you know, but we didn't do that. And now we're we're suffering.
2: Do you do you think though I mean I often think about this with with the further exacerbation of polarization in the country with Trump that you know we're we're like the only country in the world that I'm aware of that politicizes wearing masks for example like we, or just so many issues seem present here as vibrant debate issues that are not anywhere else in a way that's really frightening and I wonder with Trump and like this election, I, mean, I don't know, I haven't heard any solutions that Biden really has to address this stuff, but do you see when myth meets reality and the results are catastrophic? Like, like I mean, the initial stuff of Trump dismissing the virus, politicizing masks, saying it's a conspiracy on the left to go after his great economy and stuff like that. Do you think that we learn from that and say he should be held accountable for this? We need somebody who's more responsible, who wants to take on the issues, be honest about them, be the grown-up in the room to tackle them? Or do you think that there are people waiting in the wings who learn from Trump and will get a competent version of Trump? That seems even more frightening to me. You know what I mean? Like I, Just in the sense of, is is your approach something that people will take on? Or is it just, is it like Galileo saying like, no, everything that's in the Bible that's out there, I'm looking through technology that debunks all of this stuff and they throw him in jail. It's not because he's wrong. It's because he's right. Right. And they, they even largely knew he was
0: right. Like he wasn't the first to say what he was saying. Sure. It's just, sure. he was the mo- it, but it took another hundred years, let's say before it was common, you know, scientific knowledge. And, I don't think I don't think the political system's going to get better. I think we have this widening income gap. That's there for not the obvious reasons. There are many reasons for a widening income gap. It's not just that the rich are paying themselves more and paying the poor less. In fact, the lower class wages are going up every year, but uh uh you know, it's just you know, the, the innovations in Wall Street or or the corruption of Wall Street either way is is doing a lot and Student loan debt is doing a lot to crush new innovators. If you, if you look at the economy as innovationist as opposed to capitalist, student loan debt is the worst thing you can do to the economy. That's which is, which the, is
2: bigger than credit card debt right now right. in the U.S.
0: Right. And and that, by the way, is it's neither capitalist or Marxist. It's kind of um, anti-innovationist, for lack of a better word. It's to saddle the people with the most potential for innovation with the exact thing that's going to prevent them from innovating. And uh so I don't even know what political system it is. So I don't I think things are so personality driven right now like we think of tax Jeff Bezos, you know, get rid of Trump or Biden is cognitively this. And what I like to do is take a step back and say, well, what is Forget the person. What is Trumpism? Like, does he have a political philosophy that I understand? What is Obamaism? What is – what was Clintonism or, you know, what, what did these people bring to the table that was innovative and new and, and, either ch- and didn't change things for the better or for worse? And I think that's a good way to approach – you know, because everyone hates the person. 50 million people hated Hillary. 50 million people hated Trump. But what was Clintonism? What, what are these political beliefs that these people are, are serving to us? And then it becomes a little easier to decide, okay, that makes sense, but that part doesn't. So that's why I'm glad we have a balanced house or maybe we need a third party with another point of view. You know, I talked to Andrew Yang and he said he saw that there was a gap in the market of ideas. And so that's why he ran for president. And he did offer unique ideas that weren't quite – Democrat or Republican, it was more about Yangism, and uh, you know I think, but it's, I think it's hard for people to do that because the news cycle is about the people, and people love getting angry. I mean, we just see it even in a, a microscopic way with my article. People just like getting angry at people, and then they won't listen to reason after that.
2: That's and just so. That, that's exactly it, isn't it? It's just everything is appealing to just the most base emotional reaction.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so I don't know what the answer is. And, you know, I've been kind of scared. I've never been not optimistic in the 20 years that I've been writing and and being a pundit on these things and writing books and so on. I've always been optimistic in the 9-11, in 2008, 2009. Um, But I, I do see a pathway to... A bad situation right now, and I don't know what's. I, it, it's uh, it, the the future is unclear, or unclear the future is, as, as Yoda would say. not them i'm, I'm say I'm like Yoda, but I, I I I'm a little nervous about a variety of bad directions this can go. Particularly too, I write an article, and you know, out of every article written in 2020, in such a tumultuous year, as far as I know, this was like the most controversial article on the planet when it shouldn't have been. I mean, mm. my my kids' friends were sharing them this article not knowing that Seinfeld's article was about me.
2: Like, Interesting.
0: it's just wild what was going on. So, um, you know, I want not be honest But, I didn't say there is some dangers. There's, there's dangers of, I'm not trying to be a pessimist. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist. There's dangers, there's clearly dangers of civil war. There's, and a lot of smart people are saying that, there's clearly dangers of uh, economic depression, but there's also possibilities that, you know, the American dollar remains strong and, you know, we're able to bail ourselves out of this situation and hopefully hopefully take a look around and make ourselves a little bit more anti-fragile in terms of business, in terms of pandemics, in terms of, um, you know, quality of life for Young and old, poor and rich, and you know, I hope we, I hope we make the right choices. But it doesn't seem like we have a history of making these choices.
2: Yeah, it, it, it amaze. I always think about this kind of thing, you know, as the environment or certain existential asteroids are coming at us. And I think sometimes when I'm just like driving somewhere three generations from now, two generations from now, they're going to look back and be like, wait a minute, you knew of the impact of what you're doing? Like there's, it's just, it just kind of amazes me that we're the only species on the planet with higher reasoning and at every level we're completely suicidal. Yeah, I mean, but just the fact that, let's just say to have a good
0: political system, you need reasonable people and rational people. So a rational person is someone who's, let's let's just define it as primarily self-interested, but, you know, you, you have to be, to be self-interested, you also have to think of the community around you. Like, if, if the community around you goes to shit, you're, you're going to have problems. So self-interest includes a wider circle than just yourself. And then reasonable people are people who are willing to listen to opposing views, but we all agree that a consensus works. And sometimes my views win. Sometimes other rational people's views win. And then you could have a political system. And I think largely the U.S. has has had that. But but now I don't think we do. I don't think people are allowing the other side to speak. Or, or whether they're right or wrong, I think there's violence. We, we see this every day now. I mean, it's insane that the videos I see, I can't even tell who, who who's on what side. Just people are like, it's like a renaissance fair. People are like taking these plastic... And they're wearing and they're carrying shields like Captain America, and they're just fighting each other in the street. It's like the right. stupidest thing I've ever seen, but it's happening, which is it's real, which is scary. But again, I, I I think there is good potential if if you know I don't know if if we can figure out that consensus is good and we need to patch some holes and then fix the structure of things a little bit uh, without too much without adding to the deficit too much, we could be okay. But I don't know if that's going to happen.
2: I just, I'm just very curious why... That article I mentioned earlier, We Are Living in a Failed State by George Packer, came out in June. And I mean, it begins... When the virus came here, it found a country with serious underlying conditions and it exploited them ruthlessly. Chronic ills, a corrupt political class, sclerotic bureaucracy, a heartless economy, and divided and distracted people had gone untreated for years. I don't see this as more pessimistic or bleak than you. <laughs> I think probably it's uh harder on the country in some respects, but I'm shocked that like this didn't go viral. Yours yeah. yours did and I wonder what the difference is.
0: Maybe cuz I told a, a a personal story, you know, I told my own I interwove it with my own experiences and you know, and my my own love for the city which made it emotional somehow but so it added to this emotional charge and people kind of forgot the source of that emotional charge and lashed lashed it against me I don't I don't know cuz that guy probably wrote I haven't seen it but I, maybe he wrote one more academic style paper which usually doesn't you know get emotions riled up whereas I got people I mean I began it and ended it in a very emotional way and I ended it in a very sad way. So I was surprised when I first published it, I was surprised how many people wrote, oh my gosh, this is so sad. I didn't, that was a, that reaction surprised me. I didn't, it was sad for me, but I didn't think it would make everybody sad. And then that sadness, people don't like being sad, so that sadness turned to anger towards me. And so maybe mm-hmm. that was part of it, but I still don't know why everybody had, felt the need to respond to it, from Mark Cuban to the person in the Kings County press to, then Seinfeld in the New York Times, which, again, blew me away. I mean, it's both funny and sad how he responded. It's funny because I never thought that would have happened. I'm, I've been a fan of his for, for forever. Sad in that he really tore me apart. I don't know why. but
2: Well, and, um, and, and I noticed also I heard a, a clip when I was researching, like, the Impact your article that Joe Rogan, you know, where he's reaching 80 million downloads per month, brought up with a guest, I think a fellow comedian, and just said, I read this article that was in the Post, and almost point by point, I just couldn't disagree with any of it. And I I found it very interesting that they're just sort of calmly, rationally discussing the implications of what you raised. Everywhere else, it was just, I don't want to go near the argument. I just challenge somebody. I, I can't stand that he... Is is not optimistic that just relying on the mythology of New York that that alone will rebound everything?
0: Yeah, I I really don't understand. I was I've been taken aback, and um, you know maybe it's my fault somehow. I I, I wrote well in some ways, but maybe not in other ways. So people got distracted. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, Again, I think I probably touched – I certainly touched a nerve, and it might have been related to people's – again, their attachment to the mythology around the city, that it can never do wrong, and so we don't have to repair what's wrong. Or maybe I, people have real estate, and they're afraid of going bankrupt, and maybe I hurt a lot of those people. Or maybe people who have jobs, and I'm saying those jobs might be going away, which is true. Other people are saying, and I'm just quoting them. I don't know what it was.
2: I mean, I, for, for me, what made it sound different, and I, I think it was honest, and I think I agreed with your assessment personally, was when you're comparing it to these other touchstones, that we've always come back. And you said, well, we've never experienced anything like this before. I was here for 9-11. I was here for the 2008 recession. Where, when has the city been shut down for five months? Where, how are these jobs going to come back? How is anything going to recover from this? We just, and you it, I don't know. And I think yeah. he's saying that it was unprecedented was really not what people wanted to hear. Right. And particularly
0: like with my usual audience, and again, most of the people who read this weren't my usual audience, they expect me to have, oh, I'll keep reading this and there's a payoff at the end. It's going to be some solution at the end or some ray of hope. Yeah. But since I'm confused for the first time on this type of issue I really don't know like things have to happen or this is you know sometimes I write stuff where I'm negative on things like I, let's say I say in many situations people shouldn't own a home for instance or whatever uh people get upset at me particularly if they own a home because they have a big um you know sunk cost fallacy or a big cognitive bias and So it could be people who lived in New York or had some experience with New York, just got triggered by some cognitive bias, and they didn't have that that ray of hope that I usually have at the end, other than if you don't live in New York, you're probably glad after you read my
2: article. Mm. And you know, the other thing too is, it seems to me, especially for Americans, but I mean, it's very much a human condition, that the thing we're most afraid of is just uncertainty. And that's what I came away with from your article was, I'm really uncertain of where we're headed. It's a really uncertain future. And, uh, you know, I remember as a little kid watching professional wrestling, and it feels like America has become professional wrestling now. All the theater seems straight out of Vince McMahon's imagination. The one emotion you almost never get in wrestling is confusion. Nobody is ever confused. Yeah, you know, it's funny because,
0: you know, Obviously, I'm a, I'm a fan of your um, book on chess, uh, the grandmaster about, about Magnus Carlsen. And in chess, also, there's no confusion. It's it's a game of perfect information. At yeah. any given point, two different people look at a position. They might have different skill at looking at the position, but they every human being on the planet can has all the information on that can, can come up with the same decisions. Like there's no hidden information. It's perfect information. And so actually that makes chess not the best analogy for life where there's so much hidden information. And, uh, you know, I always compare chess and poker, which is there's a lot of hidden information. You don't know what the other person's cards are. And (laughs) yeah, so, you know, in boxing, boxing is very similar to chess. I mean, there's a little bit more hidden, but you kind of know at any given point, you know, what someone should probably do. And, you know, given the, given the weight and size of a person what's probably going to happen you know you have to really work hard to find a good match between two people and which is which is the whole secret of the boxing industry i would think and sure. like, you can't put a heavyweight against a lightweight you know what's going to happen it's um, all
2: matchmaking it's all yeah. matchmaking
0: yeah and so and they they even know when some when two people are close they know it'll be an exciting match and you know but they probably also have a pretty good idea who's going to win uh, so I, I, I used to, I used to be really, uh, interested in boxing as well. I used to work at HBO and used to, um, go to all the boxing matches and I did the HBO's boxing website. And, uh, so for a while I was going to everything, but, um, yeah, now we're in a, we have more uncertainty than, than ever really, which means in poker, you usually fold the hand or you at least take a step back. And assess where you are, and don't assume anything. And you know, you look around and you you see what what has to be different. Does my play have to be different? Am I playing against a type of table that I've ever played against before? You know, you, you you have to you have to assess the context and 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 reevaluate how you behave going forward. And I think maybe that is what's confusing people. Look, the mar- stock market goes up or down in the short term, not based on the economy, but based on the level of uncertainty in the economy. March 23rd, when the market was at its low, was when um, the Congress didn't pass the stimulus bill. The next day, they came to an agreement to pass the stimulus bill. The market's been going up ever since. So that had nothing to do with the economy. It just had to do with certainty or uncertainty about $2 trillion being given to the economy. So uh it's a good point about uncertainty. That's what really directs short-term and medium-term emotions and behavior.
2: Yeah, it just seemed like you triggered an allergic reaction that explains why more people in this country believe in angels than climate change because I don't I want certainty. I want comfort. And your yeah. article did not comfort people, but it but I think precisely because it was very well reasoned and argued and uh i've been just fascinated by the reaction to it so i I really appreciate your time today to talk about it thanks so much Oh no problem this is a a great
0: interview and um look i hope we can get together and and keep talking at some point um i really
2: appreciate your time this was a lot of fun thank you yeah same here thank you jonathan bye all right bye-bye
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.